I'm Brandon Bartnick, and this is the Future of Mobility Podcast. The Future of Mobility Podcast is focused on the pursuit of safe, sustainable, effective, and accessible transportation of goods and people. Given the critical nature of the world's climate and energy needs, these topics have never been more important, and they're certainly important to me. So, this podcast is a weekly interview series in which I learn from and put the spotlight on the people helping to develop and implement the technology required to move us forward. Who am I? As mentioned, my name is Brandon Bartnick, and I'm an engineer who realized that making a positive impact is the most important thing to me, both through this podcast and my career in the industry. If you're passionate about any of the topics I cover here, please feel free to reach out on LinkedIn or Twitter. I'd love to connect. Also, if you hear anything you like, please consider sharing the future mobility with a friend or colleague. This podcast is brought to you by Edison Manufacturing and Engineering. Technology innovation is great, but it doesn't mean anything if we can't bring our impactful products to life, which means we have to build them. And unfortunately, that's easier said than done, especially for startups and evolving companies that need a reliable option for low volume builds. That's where we come in. Edison is your turnkey manufacturing partner, specializing in build and assembly of highly complex products in annual volumes of 10 to tens of thousands, utilizing an agile and capital light approach. If you need a trusted manufacturing partner, then please visit us at edison-mfg.com or feel free to reach out to me directly at brandon.bartnick at edison-mfg.com or by visiting my LinkedIn page, Brandon Bartnick. Now to this week's episode. Today's guest is William Santana Lee, Bill Lee. Bill is the CEO of Nightscope, which is a leader in the development of autonomous security capabilities. They leverage unique technology that combines next-generation functionalities, including self-driving, robotics, and artificial intelligence. They build autonomous security robots, ASRs, that are designed to provide 24-7, 365 security to a variety of locations, including the places where people live, work, visit, and study. So we're talking about autonomous security robots super interesting topic and as uh as already mentioned here it's combining a lot of the technology that's being developed for on-road capabilities electrified propulsion systems automated driving capabilities uh, machine learning ai data analysis all, all of these interesting topics and bill it's, uh, it's certainly a engaging individual to talk with on these topics so I'll leave it there for now. Please enjoy just com- this conversation with Bill Lee. Today I'm joined by William Santana Lee. Bill, thank you for coming on. I really, uh, really looking forward to this uh, conversation. Uh, greetings from Silicon Valley. Good to chat with someone from my old stomping grounds in Detroit Rock City. Yes, yeah. At the exciting uh exciting background you have here i think exciting work you guys are doing at nightscope so if you wouldn't mind kind of setting the stage here could you just describe a bit of kind of the background how the company was started and what you guys are uh, trying to do sure uh nightscope uh, is just over nine years old um we have a slightly grandiose mission to see if we can make the united states of america the safest country in the world we built some crazy technology from scratch which is actually a combination of really four extremely difficult technologies unto themselves. And then we decided to combine them all. So we've got uh, autonomous self-driving technology, like like a self-driving car, uh, robotics, uh, artificial intelligence, and electric vehicles. And we've got these autonomous security robots now uh, patrolling uh, across the country, 
helping uh, law enforcement officers and security guards uh, better secure the places you live, work, study, and visit. So why, so you said the company's been around for a little while. Why, why was this the problem that you wanted to, uh, to try to solve? And, and what was this the, the way you wanted to go about it? Um, I, my answer typically is, is twofold. One is from a personal standpoint and then one from a professional standpoint. Uh, personal, which you know drives a lot of my uh, crazy behavior sometimes, is um, you know I was born in New York City. Someone hit my town on 9/11. I'm still profoundly pissed off about it, and so I decided that I was going to dedicate the rest of my life to better securing our country. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need to build better tools uh, for officers and guards to be able to do their jobs much more effectively. Uh, I guess second, from a professional standpoint, uh, having spent a good amount of time in the automotive industry, I believe self-driving autonomous technology is going to turn the world upside down. I'm not necessarily in agreement in the path to commercialize the technology. And we can dive into that if you like, but we've, we've taken a very different path and kind of not everyone, but most of the folks out there. Yeah, and I, that, that's a good point to, uh, I think, dive into. So one, one of the themes that's come, so I've done over 100 episodes here, Future Mobility Podcast, a lot a lot built around kind of what's safe, sustainable, effective, and accessible mobility mean. And I'm, I'm defining mobility as kind of good movement of goods and people, which I think you guys are certainly fall adjacent to or very close to, and the, the way you're approaching the task is very similar to the way a lot of companies are approaching this transportation and mobility task. But you mentioned autonomy. And I guess one of the things that I've come to believe is that uh, fully autonomous personal use vehicles, probably not the use case that's the most attractive, at least in the short term or the, the medium term, I think better uses for dedicated purposes, such as commercial vehicles in certain areas or ride sharing, or I think your use case is, is super attractive. So could you, could you speak more kind of why or how you're thinking about the autonomy problem and if or why you might think that's a better approach than what some others are taking? Yeah, perhaps I elaborate on my point on, on commercializing the technology in the first place. I said this in 2013, it's 2022 now, and you know, it, it's the same issue. Um, the problem is that in my view, engineers are really good at solving problems with constrained boundary conditions. Um, so that's why in Detroit, it's easier to start with an existing platform. Here are the hard points. Let me go modify it. The minute you do a clean sheet, a paper, and there's no constraints, like people's heads blow up. Like It's yeah. like, okay, there's too many variables. I don't know how to do this. So typically, um, engineers are really good at, you know, continuously improving, uh, you know, within a set of simultaneous equations that's it's solvable the problem at large is basically hey mr and mrs engineer we'd like to put a four thousand pound unmanned vehicle on a public road uh we've got no regulatory constraints no legal constraints no insurance constraints random time of day random vehicle volume random people volume random everything random weather uh but please make sure that the machine works 100% of the time and nothing ever goes wrong, go. I mean, this is to me one of the stupidest engineering assignments you could possibly give a team because you, you're basically the aerospace equivalent of what I often say is you're trying to go to Pluto first. You don't wanna stop at the moon and, or Mars. You're just gonna to go to Pluto. 
And that's why I've lost track now. Last time I tallied this up is over $80 billion has been invested in self-driving autonomous technology. There's 200 companies working on it. And the collective revenue out of that group is close to zero. No one shipped anything. Why? Because it's freaking hard. <laughs> like, <laughs> you need to kind of think through the problem. And I think people are starting a little bit smarter, uh, kind of the path we took, which is more constrained boundary conditions, more geofenced, try to solve an actual specific problem, um, because this is going to take a very long time. I think there's still improvements in, in sensor capability on miniaturization, on compute, uh, the amount of compute. Um, we'll, we'll all get there eventually, uh, but it's going to be a very, very long time. And, you know, folks announcing stuff like, yeah, by 2020 or whatever stupid year they pick, like we're going to be all driving around or, or being driven around in self-driving vehicles. I'm like, I don't know how you're going to get from here to there. Um, it will happen. I think, you know, trying to take a more methodical approach is, is, is certainly going to bear a lot more fruit much earlier. Can you speak to where the product development process for you guys was similar and, and different from the automotive world? So at the highest level, the problem you're solving, which most robotics, especially automated robotics problems are solving is you need to sense the world. You need to make some decisions. You need to per perceive the world, right? You need to make decisions about where you want the, where the vehicle is going to head. And then you need some actuation, some way to actually follow a path that's, that's planned kind of the simplest level. But the vehicle you're mentioning and the, the use case and the boundary conditions are very different than the public road that you mentioned. So can you speak to kind of where, where is this, where was this development process aligned with that automotive approach? And then where, where have you diverged? I think what comes to mind for me is like, when we first started, this is, you know, car, whatever, typically has whatever, 13,000 parts and it takes 18 to 26 hours to build and you know, 60 jobs an hour out you go. Uh, and one of the things that Detroit not often has been successful, and I shouldn't pick on Detroit, I, and the auto industry and, and typical low volume stuff is usually really hard. Um, and, or even mid volume becomes even more problematic in, in a lot of cases. So I think low volume is certainly something very different. Mm -hmm. um, I also look at our machines and like, oh, wow. We don't have to worry about suspension, no seats, no pyrotechnics for airbags. There's no glass. I mean, you start going through this whole list of stuff and it's like, wow, this is a much easier car to build. Like I'm not a roboticist, right? I come from it from a completely different angle. Yeah. Um, I was like, oh, this, this will be a, a lot, a lot easier. Um, one massive, massive difference um, is obviously a billion or two to get a car out the door, depending on how you want to start. It used to be, I don't know what the numbers are now. Um, maybe 400 team members, 400 prototypes and four years to get something out, depending on where you start. Um, and you have like one, it's not exactly correct, but you have one engineering release and you go build some, you know, FEUs or field evaluation units. And, and then you start trying to scale up the plant, but you're basically um, building the same thing over and over again. And you've got one release. It's, it's not exactly correct, but notionally for us, it's very different. Um, I don't believe you can build this kind of technology in a laboratory. Uh, no one in the history of mankind has ever done this before. So we would do, we do something that Detroit would never do, um, which is basically iterate in the real world. Um, so we release new software every two weeks, new hardware every three, six, nine months. And the product is constantly changing. 
um, as we learn more. So now we've operated through multiple winters and multiple summers. We've got well over a million and a half hours out in the field with real clients generating real revenue in the real world. Uh, and, uh, you know, we've learned a thing or two because we've seen a thing or two. Yep. And we can constantly iterate on the on the technology. And I, I think that's very different than the normal. Oh, uh, we launched the product. Now we're going to do a two year freshening, you know, change the front and rear six inches. And then we're going to do an overhaul in four years. Like, that's not how we work. And how do you balance? So over the year updates and the, the software approach, I think, is one of one of the things right? the Tesla has done to revolutionize the way people are thinking about the, the automotive world. And they've. I think helped move the ball forward drastically with, with this more software additive approach, but there's also significantly kind of put pushback in that. Yeah. You have beta level software. Some people would say with people behind the wheel and on public roads with other passengers and pedestrians and, and such different situation, right? Cause you have no one behind the wheel of your, of your, of your vehicles, but how do you for Nightscope try to balance that? Uh, yeah. This iterative loop and the, improving in the real, real world versus also assuring that you have a safe product out in the real world at all times? Well, you know, my, keep in mind, we're, we're at very low speeds. Um, so the risk is a lot lower. Uh, we're in primarily private roads or, um, you know, public areas, but um, it, it's a lot more controlled. We, we do some testing, obviously, at, at Nightscope headquarters uh, at KHQ, and then we'll, we'll do like a staggered release um, for, you know, machines that are more readily uh, available to us. In some cases, you know, we have a machine in Hawaii, you're not going to, you know, just sit there. Um, so uh, you try to do things carefully, you obviously need to speak to the client and let them know that, you know, we're doing some testing, there might be some changes. We have a staff that actually runs 24 uh, seven called the KNOC or the Nightscope Network Operations Center. So very similar to Verizon or AT&T instead of, um, you know, making sure that all the cell phones are working and the towers are operating. Our staff is basically making sure that all the machines are charging, uh, the right data is coming out. Uh, we've got all kinds of crazy alerts for every millisecond of whatever crazy things going on. So we're constantly uh, monitoring things. And then you always have, you know, the option to roll back. Mm -hmm. um, and then once we get some comfort, then, uh, then we release it. One of the really satisfying things for all the engineers on our team is you get um, real world feedback, like real quick. Uh, it, it can get a little tough in Detroit sometimes where you know, you're working on something for three years, four years, eight years uh, sometimes, and you'll never see the light of day until the last moment. And then finally the customers or the dealer takes a look at things and you may have gotten a right or wrong. Like in this particular case, you're going to get some feedback like tomorrow, yeah. um, which is, can be very satisfying. Yeah, that, that's, that's really interesting. And I, I can certainly see the appeal there. Uh, can we circle back on uh, boundary conditions? So you mentioned the automated driving world that, uh, that kind of the, the broad approach that's been put out there on passenger car vehicles. Yeah, super, super wide problem. Even this problem that you guys are solving right of, of security, though, if you don't scope it enough, that, that could also itself turn into a super wide problem. Like how, how did you in the early days and then how are you thinking about this now work on kind of scoping down and figuring out, okay, here, here is the specific problem within this realm of security systems and security offering that we're going to solve. And here's how we're going to do it field experience. I, I 
you got to get out there and you got to bump your head. You, so, so the things I would say, Brandon, that, you know, in a conference room before we ever put out a machine for the star Wars fans, we, the first one we ever put out in the wild was on May the 4th, uh, 2015. Um, the things that we were worried about, none of the bad stuff that we were worried about happened and none and the stuff that went wildly wrong yes. was never on the list no one ever called the meeting i mean so you need to actually go experience and be out there in in the real world your your powerpoint presentation or your engineering release notes not going to cut it you need to go out there and get punched in the nose can you give and, an example um, of you know I, and you have to be ha you have to have a collaborative relationship with the client and mm -hmm. in some cases you realize like i can't do this but if you give us a little time uh we can figure it out so for example um first client that says yeah so i'm glad you can patrol our parking lot that's really cool i've got a nine-story parking structure over here i need you to go up and down uh autonomously 24 7 and recharge and uh you know we'll give you a contract for that uh we only had assumed we'd be like on a <laughs> one one level and then now try to do the kind of autonomy on a ramp you're not on the first floor you're not on the second floor the lasers are pointing all in the wrong direction the imu is doing something they're like you have a whole other new project but if you spend the time you know we've, we've figured it out and you know now we can patrol parking structures and go up and down crazy conical stuff um but again you you got to go out and experience how do you decide when a customer comes up with a, with an idea like that of, hey, it'd be great to do X problem? Like, how do you figure out whether that's actually a problem that you want to go into? Because, yeah, sure, it'd be great to solve every project problem and be able to address every possible use case in the wild, right? But you have to make trade-off decisions. I, I might upset some people here. So we have some sane clients and we have some less insane. So yeah. the, the less insane are usually we, we try to be polite, but like, no, the machine's not going to make coffee for you. No, we're not going to, you know, because they're... Hollywood has done us a service and disservice over the last 30 years. People's expectation of what a robot can do is like somewhere up here and mm -hmm. reality is all the way down here. Um, so you got to be brutally frank with folks. And I think the wonderful thing with our clients is the more frank you are, the more they understand the better uh, as opposed to, you know, selling vaporware and like, yeah, we'll take care of that. We'll do it. No problem. Um, so um, I guess to answer your specific question, you want to think about it long-term strategy. Um, either that particular problem that they're asking us to resolve is applicable to 10 more clients, 50 more clients, a thousand more clients, like that, you know, how many folks yeah. are going to have a ramp that we need to go up kind of a lot. Uh, so let's go work on that. Uh, or that specific client, um, you know, a lot of folks look at some of the announcements we make and we typically make a new announcement, you know, a material announcement every, you know, once or twice a week. And folks are like, oh, you only sold one or you only sold five to this client. And they don't realize that that client um, has 18 other properties, 36 other properties, 150 other locations. Like this is like we got our foot in the door and then we got to kind of scale up. Yeah. And uh, so maybe if that particular client, um, so we have a couple that I spoke with last week, for example, we're asking for rational, same things that they could use and they have a lot, a lot of applications. Okay. Maybe we should prioritize and, and work on that. Yeah. I think that, 
It makes a lot so, of sense. So, Brandon, more, I, I guess a quicker answer is a very direct client uh, to OEM approach as opposed to, you know, when I used to sit there in, in Dearborn, um, okay, uh, the, the customer told the market research person who then also through the dealer gave some input to the marketing plans people that got trickled down to the vehicle line director. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I'm seven times removed from talking to a human uh, to try to fix a problem. We don't have that issue. We have a direct relationship with the decision maker. What is the actual problem you have? How can we help? Yeah, that's a great point. How, it's one of the things I've found in my experience as well is that having some type of a clear kind of North star for what you're actually trying to do oftentimes is, is yes. helpful here. Right. And how, how do you yep. guys define, okay, what, what is the underlying intent and the objective? Uh, what, what are you guys this, actually trying to do here? This frustrates people because again, I'm not a roboticist. We're not a robotics company. We're an advanced physical security company. The mission is to secure the U S Hey, you should build a robot to clean the hospitals. How is that going to help secure the country? Hey, you should do X. You should do Y, right? All off mission. So the real simple litmus thing is, is this going to help our country um, in terms of safety, security, uh, et cetera? If yes, then let's go evaluate further. If you want us to make a robot to you know, wash your car, like, no, next. Mm -hmm. And um for, for those that have been following Nightscope for a long time, like we just took the company public uh, earlier uh, this year on NASDAQ. And, um, you know, right before the listing, we had 35,000 investors. Um, and for those people that have been, you know, following Nightscope for a long time, they understand that clearly, right? But then you get a bunch of new folks who are, you know, following the, the, the tickers, uh, KSCP. We're, we're following the, the, the company who don't know this. Uh, and then you start to have the conversation all over again. It's like, no, 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 no. We're not here to just build robots for whoever or whatever. Yeah. And I mean, it's easy to say, but it's also, it's, it's, that, that always gets questioned, right? We get someone comes in with a business mind of whatever, and they say, yeah, you want to improve revenues. You look at all these profitabilities, these economies of scale throughout, right? And they're like, well, let's just go solve this problem and that'll, but it's, I don't know, it, it certainly is a discipline and a challenging task. I have to imagine to maintain that focus and, be able to say, yeah, that, that would be great, but that's really not what we're here to do. Well, 95% of startups fail. And part of it is the CEO is not willing to politely decline the shiny new object. Yeah. Um, you know, we have investors from all around the world and it's really, you know, I've been through very painful conversations of like, Hey, we hold a lot of shares in your company. You need to come to XYZ country. And I'm like, that's not what we signed up to do. And I was pretty abundantly clear up front. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, it becomes very difficult, but, you know, uh, that's, that's what the CEO is, you know, supposed to do. Can you, can you speak to any, and this is a very broad question, but anything that you've implemented within the organization that you've, you think has worked particularly well. And I'm thinking from like a, and one of the questions I always ask the guests to come on, cause I'm, you know, I'm early in my career journey still, I've got in a leadership position, but I'm still, still learning things. And I, you know, I have ideas from different schools of, of thoughts about or leadership and organizational leadership and what works well from a process perspective, from a product management perspective, all these different things that make an organization come together. But um, 
I'd be curious, is there anything you can say about kind of the approach that you've instilled in Nightscope that you think has worked particularly well, or maybe even key learnings that you've had along the way? Um, folks at, at Nightscope that do really well are the humble, smart, mission-driven, relentless folks um, that are saying we, we typically don't hire, you know, the brilliant jerk the the person that's extremely smart can do the work of three or four or five engineers but is completely unmanageable and mm -hmm. you know drive everyone crazy um to you know usually if i get involved on the recruiting side in a weird way i try to get people not to join and you're gonna look at me like why would you do that because startups are hard i mean it'll drain you emotionally psychologically mentally, physically, it'll mess with your mind. You'll have the worst day of your life and the best day of your life on the same day within a few hours of each other. I mean, this takes a, a certain kind of individual and most folks can't handle this basically. Um, so you got to try to weed out the folks that are job hopping or, mm -hmm. oh, I just want to go work in a shiny startup or cool technology or, you know, they think it's Hollywood or whatever. You need to find the you know, salt of the earth driven folks that are like, no, we need to actually fix the problem here. And I'm willing to dedicate my less, my life's best work uh, for the positive of, of, of society. And, and those that, that kind of really focus back to the mission is, is important. Mm -hmm. um, I guess early on we ad adopted, and I, I don't know, you know, where Detroit stands on this, but, you know, we ended up, you know, moving away from email and, and to Slack which, you know, Slack can be a huge abyss of, of problems, but um, it, it provides the management team, everybody, a, a great amount of visibility across the organization um, and to really know what's going on without having to be, you know, meeting overkill uh, to give me status on this, status on that, status on this is really go, go to the channel. Like you can see directly what the engineer is working on or what the, the specialist is doing or, or what have you. Um, so that's, uh, that's been helpful. Um, this COVID Palooza stuff is probably not going away for a long time. We used to be very highly concentrated here in, in Silicon Valley. Um, we've doubled the size of the team recently and we're probably going to triple the team, uh, over the next couple of years. We now have teammates, I think in 15 States. So now onboarding a new engineer in Kentucky or Virginia or Minnesota and, you know, a client experience specialist in South Carolina or, or what have you, it, it's a little odd, right? You're recruiting folks completely over online or over zoom. You've never physically met them. They're a little detached. Um, so one thing I've been experimenting with is uh, basically doing a, I call it the blue carpet, uh, doing a zoom interview uh, for 15 minutes or 30 minutes Um with the teammate on in the company that's been around for a long time uh, to get without, you know, handing you the, the, the manual, like, Hey, behave this way. Mm -hmm. It's like, Hey, you should, you, you, you need to mimic uh, her behavior. Look how far she's gone through the organization. Think about her attitude or how she handles certain issues, the responsiveness, the behaviors you want. Oh, and by the way, can you tell me the things that drive you crazy, right? And she goes through the list of all the stuff that drives her crazy, right? So you get to know the person 
but you without you know pinning someone over with a two by four actually i'll tell you the story so i had an executive that i used to work for at ford um and we were in a contentious situation and he gave me one of the coolest pieces of advice he's like bill you never want to like try to convince somebody to do something you know and hit them with a two by four uh over the head what you need to do is just kind of keep informing them give them more knowledge you know have them question some things get them smarter about the thing at a given point in time they will take the two by four and hit themselves over the head and and it's worked um okay. so I, I think that's a, a kind of different way to to recruit and onboard people and and get everyone pulling in the in the same direction yeah that, that's that's cool and uh, how about directly like resources is there anything that you've gifted or like books as one example, but it could be anything, but is there anything that is frequently on your recommended or gifted list if to someone who, uh, who you come across or who's looking for some type of guidance or to, to learn? Um, never lose a customer. Uh, it, never lose a customer again is a book. I have our client experience folks kind of <laughs> really understand the, the client journey you know, in our case, you know, we sell direct, so we don't have a, you know, dealers, you know, involved or anything like that. So we have a, you know, different kind of relationship with our client base. Um, I think those that want to understand, you know, what a founder or CEO goes through, um, uh, the hard things about hard things or something like that from yeah. um, um, the Horowitz, uh, Andreessen Horowitz guys, mm -hmm. um, th that book is pretty frank. Uh, and direct and that can show you know how difficult um, the, the job really is you know a lot of folks don't understand you know 95% of startups fail um, you know I think 80% of them make it past their third anniversary so the likelihood that you found a company you got it funded you grew it you didn't have a BTE or business terminating event along the way you were able to successfully list it on NASDAQ like you're in uh, I think my wife told me is like in lottery statistics of you know statistic of winning in the lottery basically mm -hmm. um so that you know path can be uh, extremely treacherous um and you know it's again not for the for the for the lighthearted folks here don't uh, aren't the nine to five crowd yeah for sure and so i want to go back to the the uh the product itself and i'll, I'll make sure in the in intro to it to send people to the uh to the website because i think you guys got some good good videos and such and yeah we can picture kind of what this robot looks like but can you hey, can and you don't don't forget to mention uh next week uh we're in dtw uh so the robot roadshow will be in detroit next week for a couple of days uh, if you go to nightscope.com slash roadshow, you can kind of check out the schedule and the details and, and all are welcome to come see the uh, robots in, in, in real life. Cool. Yeah. And I don't know exactly when this is going to air, but this is this, that'll be the week of June 20th, 20, 2022. Yeah. Awesome. Um, but yeah. So, so can we speak to what, what, what are the exact, um, I, I don't know if it's, it's easier for you to give a few case studies, but can we give a feel kind of what, what are the tasks that are being, executed um currently by by night scope what, what are the capabilities of the products that you're providing i'm glad you used the word executed because the robots are here they're coming to kill everyone and take everyone's job so executed is the appropriate use <laughs> uh just kidding um so the robots uh, strategically are in intended to do uh two things uh one less obvious uh, and the less obvious one if you don't spend a lot of time on physical security 
is uh, providing a physical deterrence. So very simply, if uh, you're going down, um, I don't know, Southfield and you see a cop car on the side of the road, like I don't care what speed you're doing, you are going to pump the brakes. You are going to look out your speedometer. It's just a reflex, right? Um, or if I put a, uh, a marked law enforcement vehicle in front of your home or your office, criminal behavior will change, right? So just physically being there, I mean, some people go to the extent of putting fake cameras out there or leave a patrol car without a human in it just out there. Um, and it actually generally does a, a significant amount of uh, deterrence. So a lot of folks always ask, like, why are the machines so big? Um, it's, well, you need that physical presence. Uh, so these are the most popular ones, the K5. It's, it's five foot tall, three foot wide, 400 pounds. So if you're pulling to a hospital parking lot at three o'clock in the morning, you want to go steal a car and you see this autonomous machine roaming around, you have no idea what it does. The strobe light's going. It says security or police on the side. It's making some interesting sounds. It might announce or greet you. Um, and you have no idea what it does. I'm like, mm, you're probably going to go steal the car somewhere else or not steal a car that night. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the, the positive impact we've had with a lot of clients. So if you go to nightsco.com slash crime, you can see all the great crime fighting wins where the machines are already um, done a, a positive impact on, on, on society. Uh, the second bit is the, ma the machines generate over 90 terabytes of data a year that, that no human's going to be able to process. Um, and this is intended to give the officers and guards an ability to have their eyes, ears, and voice on the ground in multiple locations at the same time. Um, so that allows them to cover a lot more ground. Maybe um, some of the folks on listening in are more technically uh, astute, but uh, you know, just quick math problem. So there are a million officers in the country. Uh, there are a million security guards, plus or minus. So that's 2 million people. Uh, they're running 24 seven, right? So you can't triple shift a human. Uh, you need four humans to cover, you know, seven day, 24 hour post. So at any given time, you've only got 500,000 people trying to secure 332 million Americans across 50 states. Like that math doesn't work. And it's not me asserting that. I can prove that because crime has a $2 trillion negative economic impact on the US every single year. Um, so by providing the officers and guards tools for them to do their jobs, uh, we should be able to make an impact. So to be a little bit more specific, Brandon, um, let, let's say a supplier in Detroit fired someone last week. It didn't go well. They're worried the person might come back. So they can upload um, the picture of the, the person. Um, they can upload all the MAC addresses for all the mobile devices associated with that person and the license plate. Um, and the machines are literally on the lookout for those detections 24 seven. Um, they have a perfect memory. They're not texting, they're not sleeping. Uh, they autonomously recharge. And even when they're recharging, they're uh, still working. Um, so that uh, gives that additional, um, as we call, unprecedented situational awareness for the humans to do the enforcement um, and decision making. And again, these are, are tools for them to use. So it's a, a softball question here. So it's, it's not that you're uh, it's not that you're replacing the officer, the security guard, whoever is on to serve you, you're giving them tools to do their job more effectively and to cover more ground to actually um, secure. Well, yeah, back to, back to the 2 million people we spoke of. They're not enough officers. I mean, it's not a popular yeah. thing to say, 
there's not enough officers and guards in this country to properly secure the nation. Full stop. Right. So the concept of a security robot going to replace a position just doesn't make a lot of sense. It's more like, hey, why don't we put the machines where uh, the monotonous, computationally heavy work can be done? And can we redeploy those uh, humans to either an appropriate location or pay them appropriately or both? Um, But, you know, our long term ambition is to see if we can add a million machines in network uh, to help the two million humans, you know actually better secure this country and how, how does how does the robot area that your robot robots uh, respond in novel environments so i think of you know something like a parking structure yeah sure I, i'd imagine it could do pretty well and it's going to see same things i don't know if it's it's learning on the fly but you have this over the air update right so as issues come up they can be addressed but i think of you know novel environments where also there's the safety risks of having a human officer go into a, a situation whether it's a environmental hazard such as like a fire or something or uh, a health hazard for other reasons like how, how is that a use case that can be addressed today of uh, deploying a robot in one of these environments it hasn't been in before or is that not so much within the scope uh, there are robots for that um, kind of more technical one-off uses uh, that's not typically where nightscope uh, provides its services uh, we're in the 24 seven, same location, mm-hmm. do the boring thing over and over again. So, um, you know, for your listeners, um, let's see, a manufacturing plant. So one of the um, automotive tier ones is a long-term client of ours. Um, they uh, have their machine patrolling the, the parking lot um, and provides the employees the additional uh, level of safety and the security team uh, an ability to kind of keep an eye on things uh, remotely. Um, it could be a logistics facility, um, you know, kind of parts, warehouses, kind of similar footprint. It could be commercial real estate. Uh, so corporate campuses, um, financial institutions, you know, uh, Bank of Hawaii, Citizens Bank, client of ours, um, lots of hospitals. Um, so Dignity Health, Houston Methodist, you know, they're running 24 seven as, as you might imagine. A lot of casinos, uh, they're running 24 mm-hmm. uh, seven. There's cash involved and alcohol, likely drama shall ensue. <laughs> so we end up with a, a, a lot of uh, casinos residential. Um, so you imagine the property manager or your apartment manager complex, you know, doesn't have a security operations center and a team of security specialists, but they have a bunch of issues like one in Las Vegas, you know, they're in the top. 10 or number three in the most 911 calls and you know it's just getting a little bit difficult so we deploy the machine there and you know according to the las vegas metropolitan police department uh, that complex is no longer on the top 10 list um and you know we can also provide nightscope plus which is a remote monitoring service because a lot of our new incoming clients don't have you know a 24 7 security staff um so lots of use cases. I mean, basic, simple way to think about it, anywhere indoors or outdoors where you might see an officer or a guard patrolling, primarily outdoors, um, is an opportunity for Nightscope to help. Awesome. How do you handle situations in which uh, the, the robot hand, uh, is, is put in a situation that it, it can't handle itself? So I don't know if it's 
you, know, you mentioned drunk, drunk people at the casino, I have to imagine they are inclined to mess with the robot sometimes or like for, for whatever reason, you have bad lighting, you got a mirror that is reflecting a weird way. It's thrown off the LIDAR, whatever. You get a situation where the, the robot, the, the onboard computer can't really trust that it really has a good understanding of its environment and knows where to go from there. Do you guys then, or do you have a way to like remote access and solve that problem from yep, um, yep. remotely? So 90% or of the time, 90% of the time, something goes quote unquote wrong. We can remotely over the air, uh, take care of it or, or teleoperate it uh, if needed. As I mentioned, we have a staff running 24 mm-hmm. seven, you know, we're pull contracts from Hawaii through Texas, through, you know, Rhode Island. So we're literally across multiple time zones. Um, so yeah, we do that on the robot abuse side of things. Uh, folks need to start understanding that, you know, similar to, Hey, you probably shouldn't graffiti the law enforcement vehicle or knock over the police motorcycle. Like you're going to probably get in trouble. Um, in our case, we have typically all the evidence to prosecute to the fullest extent of the law we have, and we will continue to do so. So we put probably half a dozen people in jail thus far, uh, for doing that. Um, it's just, you know, it's not a good idea to, to, to do that in a lot of cases in all 50 States, it's a felony. Uh, we've got one person sitting in behind bars on three felony counts in, in Washington. Um, because not only was he doing that, he was doing some other nefarious activities. It was funny. The district attorney is like, calls up and is like, I've never seen the amount of clear evidence, like from almost every angle. And so it, it'll take time, right? Society's not used to this yet. In some cases, some clients are, they, they've you know, had this for a long time. It's just a security robot, right? It's no different than a property developer, right? Would you be allowed to build a, a new building today with no smoke detectors and no fire alarms? Like, you'd be like, why are we having this conversation? It's a ridiculous assertion. Yeah. You know, five, 10, 15, I don't know what year, there's a tipping point. At some point, you know, you didn't want to pay the three to nine dollars an hour to better secure your facility. Like you're negligent. Like what is wrong with you? So at some point you, you end up with that tipping point of obviously you have to have, a, you know, autonomous security to, to help better uh, secure the, the location. Yeah. And how do you handle? So the other obvious, um, I don't know, pushback, I have to imagine people are concerned about private privacy and they're i don't know they feel intruded on or or, or or whatever i imagine that's a bigger 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 issue on in someone's mind than they actually see the thing and they're like yeah this is reasonable it's just like if someone uh, you around, know what but- it comes down you know this is another place where experience plays a huge role yeah. um you know there's been some law enforcement agencies that haven't done this too well introducing you know new technologies into the community it comes down to etiquette and manners. Um, it sounds silly, just literally introducing yourself before the machine shows up, when the machine is there, uh, fixes all kinds of problems. So we have the didn't do it and then did it, right? So there was one client who's like, no, 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 it's there's 350 homes here. Uh, we don't need to tell anybody. We're just gonna, you know, put this robot out there and be fine. And as you might imagine, <laughs> People go non-linear, like, oh my God, you're invading my privacy. You're watching what my wife is viewing on TV. You're listening to our phone calls. I mean, it's all kinds of craziness. And so we had to have an emergency meeting, like, all right, everyone, let's gather uh, and kind of explain the situation. And then after people understood, 
then you know all in favor of keeping the robot aye right so in order to avoid that situation where we try to encourage sometimes force our clients to do do the press release do the social media announcement do the lunch and learn uh come meet the robot do the robot naming contest like and explain to your visitors, your tenants, your students, your employees, the faculty, whatever it might be at that particular location. Here's why the robot's here. This is what it does. Um, any questions? And if yeah. you just do that simple Southern like etiquette of just introducing yourself, almost all the problems literally go away. And, yeah. and then the opposite happens, Brandon, which is like, People start getting emotionally attached to the robot, do the naming contest. Now it all of a sudden has its own Twitter handle or its own webpage and it becomes the opposite. But um, that little kind of nuance there is extremely important because if you don't do that, bad stuff's going to happen. Yeah. And I imagine, I mean, you mentioned saying why the robot's here. I mean, it's, it's not, I, I mean, maybe there's some people who buy these things to oppress their people, but I have to imagine 99.9%, if not a hundred percent, I'm buying people this don't to have make budget it safer. To, right? Let's go oppress people. I mean, it's yeah. ridiculous. Like people are like, I have a genuine crime problem or I have a budget problem. Um, and I need, I've tried everything and nothing's working. Like we had one client who's I think now in their fifth year renewal, you know, we had a, uh, a stolen vehicle or assault or some crime happening, you know, once or twice a week at the location. We put guards out there. We've done everything. Nothing's worked. And why are they a client five years later? Well, because it works. Yeah. Hey, maybe the circling back to another thing that you said earlier, the last kind of line, line of questioning that I had is uh, you mentioned the challenge of small scale to mid scale. And, and that's in, in many approaches, that's a product development cycle, but then also supply chain and manufacturing and how you actually handle, how have you guys approached? So you, you do have, I don't know what your, what your sales volumes are, but it's a lot less than the automotive world where you're doing hundred thousand, hundreds of thousands, I have to imagine right now. And it, it's a lot more than a job shop where you're going to do one or two of these with a bunch of engineers sitting in the back and have a reliable product. So how, how have you guys addressed that issue? Uh, painfully. Um, so Pre-COVID, when people, we, we were allowed to have visitors and now we're, you know, under all kinds of contracts and we're getting through a two-year nightmare uh, cybersecurity review with the U.S. federal government. But, um, you know, it used to be, hey, who designed all this stuff? Well, we did. Well, who engineered it? I was like, all oh, this mechanical, firmware, electrical, like software, like who designed, who engineered all this stuff? We did. Where in China did you get these built? It's like, oh my gosh, I'm going to lose my mind, right? Um, so we physically build them. Uh, so we design them, we engineer them, we physically build them ourselves, we deploy them and we support them. Like it's as vertically integrated as we can. And, and hopefully over time, we'll, we'll continue that trend uh, to, to verti vertically integrate so we can control uh, things uh, a bit better. Um, it's, uh, it's sloppy um because you're in the kind of weirdo volumes you're not doing prototypes but you're not at high volume um there's a lot of purchasing you know inefficiencies uh there but you know that'll cure itself as as you know uh the company grows so this is not a steady state you know we're going to be here for for a long time we've got uh, a lot of demand we've got you know seven figure backlog of orders and uh stuff's increasing so we're we're uh We'll, we'll get out of this uh, 
no man's land <laughs> yeah. uh, hopefully soon. And I can, I mean, that, just at a high level kind of empathizing. So my, my previous, or I guess two roles ago was with a company Boeing, right? Everyone knows. And I was in commercial air, like the, I was a process engineer on the manufacturing side for their commercial 787. And we were building five to seven planes per, per month. So it was like, yeah, there's so much inefficiency in these process and these designs are from the eighties, but the business, the math just doesn't work out for us to actually make any improvements. Cause we're not going to, the ROI is going to be so far out. So like, coming into the automotive world, then you see the volumes are so high that yeah, automation and optimization and stripping out all, all this DFM, DFA type stuff at the highest degree makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. The, D, the DFA stuff for us is like, um, uh, so we're working on this year's uh, release of the fifth generation uh, K5. Um, and so I think with the design for assembly, uh, work we've been uh, doing, we're going to be able to reduce the assembly hours by 80%. I wow. mean, it's just massive, massive efficiencies. But, you know, I, I, I'm forever grateful for the time I spent at Ford Motor Company. It was uh, it was an awesome training ground. I got to see, you know, if you go on my LinkedIn profile, I look unemployable during that period. It's like going from one job to another job to another job to another job. I kept getting promoted and double promoted, but I was uh, I had the the privilege to be able to work through almost every facet of the, of the business, and and that was just uh, just an awesome training ground. Yeah, very, very cool, and I think uh, yeah, good good place to learn, and then go apply that to to other places. And we we didn't talk about the electrification side. I I think that's that's a super super interesting aspect of your your product as well. Which I mean, thinking about it today. I think if you were designing something from the ground up today, it's a, it's relatively, I mean, people understand electrification now, right. And there's off the shelf battery modules and um, power electronics and um, motors and such. I have to imagine in 2013, it wasn't, wasn't quite like that. So it was a probably a, a much harder. Uh, actually, there's a couple of different problems. Uh, you know, one thing I, I dearly miss uh, um, being in, in Detroit was um, I got senior enough that, that my pass, my badge would, give me access to all the design studios. <laughs> and um, I used to love, I relish uh, every couple of weeks walking through all the studios and just kind of seeing what's coming up in the next year or two years or five years or whatever the advanced team's working on. I, I, I miss that sorely. The design process for what we're doing is massively different from, because we're not building car, cars, right? You know, uh, so there's some ex-automotive folks on, on my team and, you know, if we're, it was a car, like, okay, well, the rake of the windshield is going to have to be here. The bumpers kind of need to be here, though, whatever, H point to ground, whatever stuff that's kind of standard. And a lot of reasons cars look all the same is because the regulations are all kind of the same and they all kind of have the same underpinnings. But for, for Nightscope, like we didn't have a reference point, right? There's not like, oh, the DLO should kind of be like this. We, we didn't have any of that stuff. So we had to do two things. One, when we didn't have any money and, you know, didn't have two pennies to rub together, you know, we would have to build up some physical models and, you know, can't afford the clay. So, all right, bust out the wood and the spandex to figure out, you know, is this too big or too small or what have you, because you have no pro, you know, proportion reference point. Uh, we got a little bit more sophisticated years later. Uh, our uh, head designer uh, built a virtual studio uh, get the virtual reality goggles on and then you're able to like literally walk around and kind of compare that to 
an actual car that we know or in a different environment and that sort of thing. And that really, really helped us nail down uh, some of the proportions because you know, the stuff that we build doesn't look or smell like anything out there. So you, you've yeah. got no reference point. You don't know if that, you know, uh, we don't have front overhangs, but you know, if that front overhang versus that rake of the windshields, right. Or whatever. Um, so that that's been a very, very interesting and, and, and different process. I really hope for Detroit uh, on the electrification side of things that the designers actually finally get some real freedom um you know have this massive block of engine up front to screw it up all the physics of everything and i my it hurts my heart every time i see a new electric vehicle and it looks exactly like the proportions of a normal ice vehicle it's like oh my, you you're kidding me you had all the flexibility in the world and yet decided to put the uh whatever hood line there I, it just it just hurts. I, so I'm hoping the designers get a little bit more uh, empowered. Yeah, there's a p- potentially for a brave or potential for a brave new world here. We will we will see. But uh, yeah, Bill, thank you, thank you for joining. I think this has been a lot of fun. Uh, super interesting company and uh, problem you're you're solving and the way you're solving it, all, all those things. Uh, may, maybe last question I'd leave it to you. Is there anything anything we missed that you were hoping to cover, or if not? Anything in particular you're hoping someone listening to this uh, walks away from the conversation thinking about? Uh, our annual shareholder meeting is on the 23rd, I think, of June. We might have some goodies to announce then, so <laughs> you might want to uh, tune in. Um, if you'd like to host the Robot Roadshow to come, this is like a crazy, I call it a robot aquarium. we got a bunch of robots stuck in a huge glass box that's going around the country. We've done, I think, four dozen stops uh, across the nation so people can come see and, and feel and experience and, and do a live demo uh, so if you w- want to host or visit um, go to nightscope.com slash roadshow and uh and our ticker symbols uh kscp on nasdaq and hopefully everyone uh, will follow the story as we're on a brave new mission uh to see if we can make the united states of america the safest country in the world awesome well bill th- thank you again and uh yeah, best of luck to you guys All right. Be good. Take care. Well, there you have it. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Bill Lee. So two two big things that stand out to me. The first is really interesting application of a lot of the technology that I've I've talked about on this podcast. I mentioned at the beginning, electrified propulsion system, automated driving, the connectivity aspects, a lot of the technology that's going into next generation on-road technology is being leveraged into this automated robot which super interesting to hear about how bill and nightscope is thinking about building a fiscally viable commercially viable use case and product utilizing this, this technology in a dedicated application segment where they're able to uh yeah, pro- provide real value without solving maybe some of the most challenging nuances that are required on road. The second thing that is uh, that stood out to me is just this, this challenge of, uh, when I first heard about Nightscope, and I th- I'd imagine a lot of people, you know, you you hear autonomous security robot, you feel defensive at, at first. You think, is, is this going to be intrusive? Is this something that I would actually want if I put myself in the shoes of a worker or an individual living in a place where this would be deployed and we talked about this in the episode i think this can be overcome it's an unfounded 
bias I believe in myself and I, probably a lot of others. That's, but it's it's nonetheless something that needs to certainly be considered and overcome. And I mean, to some extent, this is the same problem that we're facing as robotics technologies being deployed in on-road use cases. But now this, I don't know, the security element, I think, even ups the stakes. So really interesting to hear how they're approaching that problem, how they're thinking about getting buy-in, having a successful launch. Bill mentioned the importance of manners as you're rolling this out, which I think is a cool way to think about it. So great discussion. I really enjoyed this. I hope you did too. Thank you for listening. And as always, more to come next week. Thank you for listening to the Future of Mobility podcast brought to you by Edison Manufacturing and Engineering. If you have a need for a trusted manufacturing partner for low volumes of highly complex products, then please visit us at edison-mfg.com or feel free to shoot me a note directly at brandon.bartnick at edison-mfg.com or visit my LinkedIn page, Brandon Bartnick. Edison specializes in build and assembly of highly complex products and annual volumes of ten to tens of thousands, utilizing an agile and capital light approach. If you're making an impact in the mobility space, we'd love to help. Until next time, thank you for listening to the Future of Mobility podcast.